Number 49. 49 out of, let's see, October the 1st, the 8th, the 15th, and the 22nd. We're going to do four more messages on the Scarlet Thread. So 49 out of, what would that be, 53 messages. We're coming near to the end, to the last knot and the Scarlet Thread. Uh, last week, we took a look at the life of an enemy of the church who became a friend through Christ. Who was that? Saul, who became Paul. And now we continue the story. He's introduced in the ninth chapter, and he's going to dominate the last part of the book of Acts, of course, beginning in chapter 13. Some other references to him before then. And we're coming near to the end of the accounts about Peter, and that's what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about no respecter of persons. So where are we in, a, in an overview? Pentecost has happened. And then through which group of Christians did the church first spread? You know, he told the apostles to go to beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the the uh, earth, but was it really first the apostles that did that that we know about the twelve that then began to spread it beyond Jerusalem? No. It wasn't Philip the apostle, it was Philip the who? Philip the deacon, and he was a Hellenistic Jew. Um, <clears throat> who knows, he may have been in the same synagogue as Stephen, we don't know. And so we know that the gospel has spread beyond Jerusalem into Samaria. And how many accounts have there been of the falling of the Holy Spirit by the time we come to the 10th chapter of Acts? Well, there's Pentecost in the second chapter. Was it the falling of the Holy Spirit? It was certainly the filling of the Holy Spirit in Acts, the fourth chapter. Remember, there was another filling of the Holy Spirit when they prayed after the apostles came back from standing for the Sanhedrin. And then in Acts the 8th chapter, Peter and John go to Samaria after Philip's been there and the Holy Spirit is not present in the believers, those that have accepted Christ, and they put their hands on them. And remember, Simon Magus envies that and he wants to buy the Holy Spirit. Isn't that humorous? <laughs> so there is another then falling of the Holy Spirit. So that's at least three occasions. And But the spreading of the church comes through the Hellenistic Jewish Christians. And as we will see, we won't see tonight, but what we do know is later in chapter 11, it is actually spread by this time to Cyprus, Cyrene, Antioch, Phoenicia. So it's clearly in the camps of Gentiles, Jews certainly in those communities, but almost certainly amongst Gentiles by that time. So the issue tonight is not, has the gospel been to be shared with the Gentiles. That's not really the, the issue. Um, chapter 9, we have Paul's conversion. We talked about that last week. And tonight we talk about Paul's, uh, Peter's ministry, after Peter's ministry beyond Jerusalem. He has then begun to go outside Jerusalem into Judea. And he is in Joppa. He's raised Tabitha uh, from the dead, one of the resurrection miracles in Acts and so now we talk about the gospel for the Gentiles in chapter 10 and the first part of chapter 11. Philip has evangelized Samaria and baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. And he uh, eventually settles with his daughters, we find out later in Acts, in which city? Caesarea. 
but not yet. Antioch, uh, the Hellenistic church has started, so it's reached the Greeks. We find out later in Acts 11. And possibly, we don't know for sure, but possibly Paul has even begun to share the message with the Gentiles. We don't know this for sure. We know that he goes into the desert. We don't know whether he was absolutely by himself. He may have even preached to some of the Arabians. We don't know. There's no evidence in Scripture for that. So why did God choose Peter for this next phase of growth in the church? Not, not that it's because of him it grows to the Gentiles, but there's a critical issue here. The issue is the Gentiles who accept the gospel, will they be a part of the church in a unified way, and what must occur in order for them to be a part of that church? Because all of the other believers up to that point, the Jews that have become part of the ecclesia, had already been circumcised. So it was just an, it was a natural understanding then that they would be new covenant people because they had been old covenant people. They were circumcised, and they accept then following Christ, the rabbi, who was a Jew. So is this a matter of having to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. Now that, that issue is resolved later in Acts the 15th chapter, but that issue is an underlying problem that we face in chapter 10. Why did, why, why did God choose Peter uh, for this mission to settle this issue and really to make sure that the church understood that they were to reach the Gentiles as equals? Well, he's the foremost apostle. He's at the top of all the apostolic lists. Uh, his confession at Caesarea Philippi stand, uh, sets him apart, really, from the others. It's not upon Peter that the church is going to be built, but it was upon the confession of faith that God gave him. He's part of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, sometimes Philip. He's demonstrated his leadership through his preaching, Pentecost sermon number one, number two, and he's about to preach the third sermon. He has performed miracles. He has stood before the Sanhedrin and apologized, given apologetics, and he's a charismatic leader. He's also probably the most conservative, I would think, of all the apostles. He's probably least likely, maybe with some of the others, but he's probably least likely to accept uncircumcised Gentiles into the body. He's a traditionalist. So if Peter becomes convinced, in my opinion, this says, scripture doesn't say this, but if he, if he becomes convinced and gives testimony because he's a foremost apostle and because of all these other things, and if he's convinced, this will go a long way as a statement for the unity of the church. So how does this storyline go? This is a long chapter, and guess what? We're going to read every verse of chapter 10, so you know we're going to go to 6 tonight for sure. <laughs> it's the longest story in the book of Acts. Okay, uh, There are three versions of it. There's one that's found here, and then there's a reduced version of it in chapter 11. We're go we read a little bit of it. And then it is repeated in another form in chapter 15. The outline tonight would be in four parts. The first is the invisible hand of God, part one. That is where God orchestrates the bringing together of Peter and Cornelius. The second part, where he says to Cornelius, basically, I'm just a man. That's upon his meeting, Cornelius, and we'll talk about and unpack what that means. And then the third part is the gospel, clearly we know, but he articulates that the gospel is for everyone. And this is when Peter preaches his third sermon. And then we come to the last part, and that is the confirming sign of the Holy Spirit in all of this. 
There were three major stumbling blocks to the unity of the Gentiles and the Jews, of course. One of those was table fellowship. We know according to rabbinic code, they were not to share the table. But also, too, behind that was the biblical understanding that they were to keep a kosher table of the Jews. And by implication, of course, and then really later, the the scripture indicates, as we'll see, that uh, this distinguished them from from the, the, the pagans. Secondly, there was the issue of circumcision, because that was what was required for a first person to come into the covenant, ecclesia. We talked about ecclesia this morning in Matthew 16, Matthew 18. Remember we said that ecclesia originally wasn't the church, it was the full assembly of the Jews. And so for someone to come into the full assembly of the Jews, what did they have to do? They had then to acknowledge that Jehovah was God, that is convert to belief in him. They had to make an offering or sacrifice at the temple. They also had to be what? Circumcised. So that was a stumbling block, uh, partly because male circumcision for adults was a very difficult thing for a pagan to accept or for anyone to accept. And then there was a clash, clash of cultures, the obvious clash between the Roman culture, the Greco-Roman culture, and the Jewish culture were all stumbling blocks to unity behind this story. The date, we're not sure exactly when it was, but we... We believe that Paul was in Caesarea. Remember, he left there and was in Caesarea after he left Jerusalem the first time, probably sometime around 37 to 38 A.D. And then Peter arrives. So this is probably about the summer of 38 A.D., somewhere about, what, seven, eight, six, seven, eight years after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. The setting... Caesarea that we're going to. He was in Joppa. But he goes to the seat of Roman government then in that part of the world where the Roman procurator sat. And there was a military garrison that had been established there about 32 years before. It was a Gentile city with many pagan cities, many pagan temples. But there was a large Jewish minority. And so there was a kind of tension between the majority pagan population and the Jewish population. And there was an occupational army. The occupational army, we know, was Roman. There were about 3,000 Roman uh, soldiers. And in addition to that, an Italian cohort of soldiers that served as auxiliaries in the Roman army. And a cohort was about 600. So maybe there were as many as about 3,600 soldiers there. And it was an occupied town. So God now speaks to Cornelius. The first part of this message is the invisible hand of God. Verse number one. Now there was a man at Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. So the exhortation that we had last week about praying continuously or continually, he followed it already. Cornelius was a centurion. This means he was a non-commissioned officer. He had command over how many soldiers? Centurion. How many soldiers? hundred soldiers, yeah. He probably had considerable wealth based on the fact that he's got several slaves and a large household, and he has a large military entourage that are in his close cohort. Like the Ethiopian eunuch, he is a God-fearer. That means that he's a proselyte of the gate, He is not allowed to go into the assembly of the righteous, but he's still a Gentile, even though he's a God-fearer and a God-believer. And of course, to become a 
complete believer, meant circumcisions, but not only that, it probably meant that he would have to abandon his post and give up his position in the Roman army. And then we come to an alarming vision in verse number 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw a vision, in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing, that is Cornelius, fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he, he said, What is it, Lord? And he, that is the angel of God, said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, Dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He's staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. So the time is what? It's the ninth hour. And if you remember from Sunday school or church training, your Roman time clock, it was about 3 p.m. This was one of the two times of day that the Jews prayed three times a day, but it was one of the two times when they not only had prayer but sacrifice in Jerusalem. And so he was probably praying at this time when he had the vision. The angelic message was initiated by whom? It was initiated not by Cornelius, but by God through his angelos, through his messenger with specific instructions. And it wasn't a dream. He was wide awake. He fixed his gaze alertly. He wasn't in a daze, but he certainly was in a kind of, if you will, Tramps. And he was commended by the angel. He said, What? Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial. So there's a kind of parallel. At the same time that the sacrifice is being presented on the altar in Jerusalem, his prayers and alms are like a what? A memorial, a sacrifice, a spiritual sacrifice that has been lifted. God, that reminds us that when we come to worship and we pray and we sing and we read the scripture and we preach and we uh, do intercession, all those things. We do the benediction. All of those things are what? We are a priesthood of believers that are called to do what? To lift up spiritual sacrifices to God. This is what he had done. And the instruction was to send for a man named uh, Simon. And he, he didn't tell the ultimate purpose. He just said, do it. So he, he doesn't know where this is going to lead. And what did he do? He obeyed. The, the significance of this, I think, is that uh, Simon is clearly a Jewish name, and he's going to be invited into a Roman home, and so it was going to break all conventions. He, not only that, he was living with a tanner, and the tanner was uh, not one of the highest paid vocations. As a matter of fact, it was from, he was from the lower class, so he's a poor commoner, and here's a guy that's staying with a, lower common, a low commoner in, in Joppa. So you've got this somewhat wealthy Roman citizen who is in this garrison over all these troops, has all this power and authority, and he is being commended to invite a Jew to come into his home. And not only a Jew, a fisherman, and not only a fisherman, one who's staying with a, with a tanner. So what was Cornelius' response? Verse 7, when the angel who was speaking to him had left, he, that is Cornelius, summoned two of his servants, and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So what did he do? Did he cogitate about this? Did he ruminate over it? Did he think he, he did what? Immediately. He obeyed. Uh, what does that say about him? Well, he's a soldier. He's a soldier. And a soldier knows how to take commands from the one who is in authority. 
So he recognizes the angel of God as an authority that has come and given him an order, and he obeys it. And he sent his best, his most trusted men. He sent not just any soldier, but a devout soldier, which probably suggests he was a God-fearer like Cornelius. Part of his inner circle, probably an orderly, uh, and almost certainly a believer. He sent one of his household servants, or he sent a plural more than one servant. Well, these were slaves, and they were under the control of the soldier. They couldn't escape. They had to be loyal. They couldn't run away. So he sent the best people that he had to go to make sure that they faithfully would fulfill whatever it was that God wanted them to do when they saw Simon and invite him to come. So the journey to Joppa is about 30 miles, a little more. Uh, They left immediately. Well, it started at what time? Ninth hour, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It was about a 10 to 12 hour journey. It was an overnight journey. That's important. That is, they probably went by foot. I doubt they went in a chariot. So then God speaks to Peter in verses 9 through 16. First two verses. He was in a trance. On the next day in verse 9, as they were on their way, that is the uh, soldier and the servants, and they were approaching the city, Peter then went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry, and he was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. So the sixth hour was about noon. Now this is one of the three times of praying in the Jewish calendar, but there wasn't a sacrifice being done at that time in Jerusalem. And so he had broke, he is breaking fast. He has probably eaten early in the day. He's hungry now. He's about ready to eat lunch and is very hungry. And he falls into a trance. Now, what this doesn't mean that is that he is in a daze. The word literally means ecstasy. It's not a dream. He's fully awake. In fact, He's probably very alert. His consciousness is probably in a heightened state of awareness. And verse 11 then, we have the command and Peter's reaction in the next four verses. And in verse 11, and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, get up, Peter. Kill and eat. And Peter said, (laughs) By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. He clearly is a law-abiding, conservative Jew that strictly follows the kosher, kosher laws for diet. You see, there are all kinds of animals here. If you look at it, there are the three kinds that entered the ark. There were the birds flying, there were the crawling, the reptiles, and there were four-footed animals, as we see in Genesis 6. But there were also all kinds of four-footed animals. So when Peter saw that, well, reptiles, they were unclean. But then all kinds of four-footed animals meant that it included what? Unclean animals as well. So Peter's refusal to eat, we know, was based on the Levitical Code. And Leviticus 11, which outlined what was clean and unclean. Okay, So it wasn't just a rabbinic tradition here. And it's specifically linked to distinction between and separation from the Gentiles. Because in Leviticus 20, they are told then that this diet separates them from the nations, from the pagan nations. And he is not going to eat. (laughs) The message that came from God then in verses 15 and 16, what was God's point? 
And again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And this happened how many times? Three times. And immediately the object was taken up into the sky. So what is God saying here? Stop making unholy what I have made holy. Stop calling unclean what I have made clean. Well, how had God made it clean? Well, we know that Jesus explained in Mark 7, it is not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but what comes out of, his, out of a man. All kinds of abominations and sins that come out of us are the things that make us unclean. So it was according to the teaching of his son, Jesus Christ, that is introducing the new covenant that tells us it's not what goes in that makes us unclean. And Jesus demonstrated this time and time again. This morning we said, he ate with sinners and tax collectors. He ministered to Gentiles. He touched lepers. He was always in contact with the unclean. So he demonstrated in his ministry and his life that those things were not unclean. And then Jesus fulfilled the principle that it's not what goes in that makes unclean, but what comes out, that it is the sin that needs to be redeemed and washed away. And he demonstrated, he fulfilled that principle by doing what? By dying on the cross, by shedding his blood, so that he could cleanse all of us from unrighteousness. And we enter into a new covenant, where it isn't the blood of goats and bulls that are to be the sacrifice for the blood of Jesus Christ. So God now shows his hand. This is all about the invisible hand of God, remember? Now God shows his hand in verse number 17 through 23 because, you see, neither Peter nor Cornelius know exactly what's happening here, okay? Cornelius just knows, send those guys to Joppa, and Peter doesn't even know what's about to happen. Now God shows his hand, verse 17. Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, the whole, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. Hmm, where's Peter? He's up there in the trance at this very moment. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Verse 21, Peter didn't dawdle. He didn't think about it. He did what? Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, and a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send you to come to his house and hear a message from you. Now he knows why they're there. He's supposed to go there, and he knows what he's supposed to do. But he doesn't know what's going to happen. <laughs> Verse 23. So Peter invited them. He invited them in, and he gave them lodging. And on the next day, he got up, and he went away with them. And some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. You see, he's perplexed. Peter understood the principle, I think. Now, he understands, don't make unclean what I have made clean. He understands the principle. It's been demonstrated three times. He, you know, Peter sometimes could be pretty stubborn, and Peter sometimes didn't get it the first time or the second time. But the third time, I think he gets it, okay? Just like the third time Jesus said, feed my sheep. I think he got it, okay? But I don't think he quite understands the application 
He doesn't know where this is leading. If, if he did, maybe he was reluctant to accept it. But I, I don't think he knows where it's headed. You see, there's providential timing here. Two separate incidents. 30 miles apart, over 30 miles apart, which is, you know, a day's travel. And a day apart, and yet Cornelius' men arrive precisely at the time that the vision to Peter has finished. Whose hand is in this? This providential hand of God. And the divine revelation comes through this. You see, it was only God, not Peter, it was only God, not Cornelius, that orchestrated it. And when God commanded Cornelius, he obeyed immediately. And when God commanded Peter, he obeyed immediately because they knew that God was in the messengers and God had sent them. And, and then the meaning is clarified indirectly, not by God, but, but by the men that they sent. What is the purpose? You have a message then to take to Cornelius. And Peter was obedient. He did what? He didn't just pack up his stuff and leave. He brought them in. He fed them. He gave them hospitality in, in the home of Simon the Tanner. Isn't that interesting? Because almost certainly these, the servant and the soldiers were what? Gentiles. Wow. That's crossing a threshold, isn't it? And then he followed them without hesitation. So what's the application of this first part? God works in extraordinary ways, doesn't, it? doesn't he? But through ordinary people. Now, you notice it's interesting. God works through visions and angels, and God sent, sends messages through angels, and, and, and God did it this time, but God never uses angels to preach the gospel. God never uses angels to convert people. Now, I know, I know he sends messages like the angels, you know, at the incarnation of Christ and all, but when it comes to preaching the word of God and the gospel, he uses what? He uses sinners that have been redeemed and have experienced the transforming power of Jesus Christ and are filled with the Holy Spirit. I think there's another reason, you know. He could send down a legion of angels across Fort Worth. And immediately, I guarantee you, everybody except an idiot would come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But Jesus didn't do it that way himself. Oh, he performed divine miracles, of course. But Jesus never overwhelmed people to the point that he compelled them through his supernatural power to follow him. He uses sometimes extraordinary means to reveal himself, but he uses ordinary people to preach the gospel. We need to remember that. God's invisible hand is constantly at work, sometimes through supernatural miracles, sometimes through the impeccable timing of events like the rock slide that stopped the Jordan River so that the people of Israel could cross. That was a miracle, but it was a miracle of timing. But often he uses everyday coincidences, they're not coincidences. It's not a coincidence that they showed up at the right time. He converts coincidences to what? Providences. He also understands what makes us tick. You look at, he understood Cornelius. He understood Cornelius' desire to serve God, but his separation from God. He understood that when he commanded Cornelius, the soldier, Cornelius would obey under authority. He understood what made Peter tick. Peter and his stubborn <laughs> spirit still genuinely decide, desired to please God. But he knew that he was going to have to convince Peter again and again and again, proof after proof. He understood what, Peter, what made Peter tick. Second part, I'm just a man, verses 23 through 33. 
This is a pivotal New Testament event that is about to occur. God is about to break down some walls. He's going to break down the religious separation between pagan and Jew and make the pagans Christians and the Jews Christians. He's going to break down cultural and political animosity between in a Roman city with a Jewish minority. He's going to break down the spiritual barrier then between one who, want, who, who wants to come to know God better but is distanced by his sin and he is going to redeem him. And it, it's going to involve crossing barriers. Cornelius is going to cross a barrier and so is Peter. Cornelius is going to be converted and come to the gospel and Peter is going to be converted to understand what God's message is for the Gentiles. You see, they're both crossing barriers. So in verse number 23, and on the next day, he got up and he went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. How many went with him? This passage doesn't tell us. But if we go down to chapter 11, verse 12, look at it. If you've got your Bible open. How many went with him? Am I right? Did I get the verse right? I hope I did. Six. Six companions went with him. You see, later Peter is going to be challenged in 11.2, chapter 11.2. When he, when he comes to, back, back to uh, Jerusalem, he's going to be challenged, isn't he? And he needs these witnesses to verify what has happened. So there's a reason for them to go. Verse 24, we see Cornelius, the family and community man. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. He's lived there long enough that he's established a homestead, even though he's a soldier and has probably moved from pillar to post most of his career. He's settled in Caesarea. His family's there. He's got a home there. He's got friends there. His circle of influence is probably quite extensive then in Caesarea. We see the spiritual leadership in Cornelius here. He wasn't just concerned about himself. He does what? He gathers his friends. He gathers his family together to hear this important message that's coming from God. And in verse number 25, okay, here we go. Uh, we enter that aspect of, of, of God not being a respecter of persons to some degree, okay. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshiped him. Hmm. There are actually two entrances that occur here. At this moment, he crosses the physical threshold into kind of an anteroom. Not the main part of the house, but he crosses a physical threshold. But Peter has just entered a whole new worldview. That's important. Peter's life is not going to be the same again. He's entered into a new phase of his life. And not only that, he is, God is using him to inaugurate a whole new era in world history. The moment he crosses that threshold, isn't that amazing? It's the first of two entrances, verse 25 and then verse 27. You see, Cornelius himself then goes into this anteroom, this outer entryway, as a sign of respect for his guest to meet him there. This is really a reversal of social custom. Who's the superior? Cornelius. Who's the inferior? Peter. But he goes out there and he welcomes him into his home. And then he does what? He wants to worship him. Well, this is according to pagan, pagan custom. You know, pagan, pagans, Greeks and Romans revered their gods, but they not only revered the gods, they revered the messengers of the gods. And this is how probably Cornelius views Peter, a messenger from God Almighty, an ambassador of the gods, and he deserves honor and worship. What was Peter's response? <laughs> Peter raised him up, 
You know, so what's that mean? It means that you got this Roman centurion on his knees in front of Peter. He raises him up and he says, stand up. I too am just a man. So we come to the second phase of the passage, just a man. This is a very forceful command. He's looking at this centurion who's a soldier, and this is a fisherman, <laughs> a Jewish fisherman commanding a Roman soldier with all his power and authority. But where are they? They're away from the rest of the crowd. They're in the ante room. Peter doesn't embarrass him in front of his family and friends, but he gives him a forthright command, doesn't he? Stand up. This wasn't just a, a, a polite social convention, you know, well, I'm in your home, you know, and, and you, you, you don't need to do that. No, it was an absolute refusal to accept what? Worship and divine honor, even indirectly. Even as God's ambassador, that's important for us to remember. We're royal ambassadors. We're ambassadors for Christ. But whenever we go, whenever we speak, whenever we preach, whenever we teach, we are simply that. And we need to remember that we are not up on a pedestal. And we're not to be admired and honored and worshipped. And we know that. So, you know, this, this happened with Paul and Barnabas at Lystra. They thought they were gods. And they said, no, we're not gods. Come on, get real, they said to them. Paul in Malta, after he was snake bit, they wanted to worship him, and he rejected any kind of veneration. And then we have the second entrance in verse number 27 into the main dwelling. As he talked with him, he entered then and found many people assembled. Now, so that's the second entrance. He's with the rest of the people. And then he communed with him. The word that is used with there literally means that he had close fellowship, immediate fellowship with him. And I think he, it says he's, he's surprised. There were many assembled there. This surprises Peter. How many could have fit in this home? Probably most uh, scholars think probably about 50 people maybe. That's a pretty good crowd. Peter was not expecting that. He's gone to give a message to whom? To Cornelius. Verse 28 and 29, then we have breaking with custom and following God. And he said to them, that is to the crowd, you yourselves, you know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit with him? And yet God, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising an objection when I was sent for. So I asked, for what reason have you sent me? Now, he knows he's supposed to give a message. <laughs> but what kind of message is it to be? See, there's no specific biblical command that prohibited contact with the Gentiles. They weren't to have table fellowship with them. But the word that is used here is not that it was unlawful as it is in some versions. It means it was not laid down. Or it has been laid down. In other words, there is a strong social taboo for Peter not to be in the presence of a Gentile home. There was never any biblical requirement that prohibited him from visiting. It was a rabbinic purity code. You see, by entering a person's home, it was assumed that when you entered the home, you were going to do what? Eat with them. When you have fellowship, you eat in the home. So it was assumed by the rabbis that if you enter into a Gentile's home, that's going to happen, and then that breaks the law. Entering his house meant an invitation to eat and to become Levitically unclean. Hmm. But Peter obeys God. What the word means there is when he associated with him, it means actually glued together in such a way that one has table fellowship. To visit 
means the same thing. So what Peter is doing here, he's not just breaking rabbinic code. In Peter's mind, once he crosses that threshold and he associates with a Gentile with an invitation to come into his house, he is breaking the whole Torah. He's breaking all the law. But wait a minute. It's God that told me to do this. <laughs> and Cornelius knew the Jewish custom as well. You see, God-fearers were keenly aware of this. They, were, they knew the, the Jewish law. They understood their unacceptability in Jewish society as well. You know, the centurion in Matthew 8, 8, you know, that wants Jesus to uh, heal his servant. He says, I am not worthy, the centurion, I am not worthy, what, Jesus, even to come under for you to come under my roof. So you see that's, that mentality. It goes both ways. You've got two guys that are like oil and water. <laughs> Peter knows he's breaking the Torah, at least in his mind. And the centurion knows he's breaking Jewish custom. There's a triple purpose for Peter's proclamation that he makes here. One is he wants to be transparent with the Gentiles, what's going on here. He wants to be sincere and uncompromising. But at the same time, he, his companions that are with him, he's making it clear to them the gravity of this situation. Do you know, do you really understand what we are about to do? And he announces to both, who's to blame? Ain't me. That's bad grammar. Don't use ain't. It's the wrong case. It is not I. And it's not Cornelius. Who's to blame? It is God. You see, it is God's decision. This isn't a human compromise. It's not a human decision. It's God's decision. And Peter then has experienced a conversion. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unclean or unholy. You see, the Holy Spirit had helped him to understand in this redemptive thread where we are. That salvation was not only for the Jews, it was for the Gentiles. But in order to become a Christian, he's beginning to understand that those that are not yet converted are not necessarily unclean. God can make them clean. Nobody in God's eyes is common. Nobody in God's eyes is unclean. In other words, everyone, Christ died for everyone. Now, they may be sinners, but everyone can be, done, can be made clean, can be redeemed, can be cleansed. So don't call... We're created, God created every person. We're created in the Imago Day. So we should not look at anybody as being unclean. They may not be, have experienced the redemption of Christ yet. The potential's there, and Christ died for them, and God created them. So what is Cornelius' response in verse 30? Cornelius said, Four days ago to this hour I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. You see, he's telling him why he's there. And behold, a man stood before me in shining garments, the angel. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is called Peter, to come to you. And he is staying in the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately. And you have been kind enough to come. Now, now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Mm. You see, God set the table. Neither Cornelius nor Peter anticipated this was going to happen. God engineered it all. And it anticipates the presence of God. 
You see, Cornelius was eager to hear a message from God about God to draw him closer to God. Peter was responding to the command indirectly through Cornelius to share this message. And the gospel was about to be proclaimed. And wherever the gospel, God's everywhere. God's present everywhere. He's omnipresent. But wherever the gospel is presented, you can guarantee God is present and he is superintending. And that is what is happening. And so what's the application of this? I'm just a man. Word of warning to preachers and any other Christians. They get too full of themselves. When we speak, we must speak whose word? God's word. And when we say, thus saith the Lord, it better be what the Lord says. And when we speak that word, it better be about God and not about us. It's a word of warning. It's also a word of equality. God is no respecter of persons, which we will see in just a moment. Everyone has equal dignity before God. It's a word of encouragement to those who seek the gospel. Hmm. There's an awesomeness about being God's messenger. Uh, Shannon, you're just a man. I know other people think you're a woman, but you know what he's saying here. You're just a human, right? John, you're just a human. You're just a man. But let us not sell short our responsibility as just those men and women that God has called to deliver his message. You see, we have an important message to share and the message that we have is far greater than we, and there's an urgency that we have to share it. So we never sell short the message that we carry, even though we are just men. Don't sell God short his ability to break down barriers and erase prejudice. Don't sell God short his ability to prepare the way and open the heart of Cornelius. Don't sell God short. Look at what he did with the Ethiopian eunuch riding along in the chariot, and then Philip comes along beside him. The timing of that occasion was perfect in God's schedule. Don't sell God short. He orchestrates the right situations, the divine appointments to share the gospel, and God has a divine appointment for you sometime this week, and for me too. Don't sell God short. Part three, the gospel is for everyone. Acts 34 through 43. Remember people, Peter's bold assertion at Pentecost to the Jewish crowd? Remember what he said? What shall we then do? And what was his response? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He is repeating Joel's exhortation from the ninth century to God's chosen people, the Jews. This was Joel speaking to the Jews. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter says this to a crowd in Jerusalem who are all what? Jews. Oh, yeah, they came from all over. They were from the diaspora, but they were all Jews. Now what is Peter going to say to a first century Roman soldier in a pagan Greek town? Does the message change? No. Why? Because the gospel is for everyone. So, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the person who fears him and does, not, and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all these things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that 
he become visible. Not to all the people, but to the witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who was appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. How does Peter share this message? He shares it in a relevant way. He spoke to non-Jewish hearers from a pagan background, but he immediately disarmed them by saying what? God does not show partiality. In other words, message is for you. And then he says, he is Lord of all. Well, Greeks and Romans had this concept of their rulers being lords, so he's, he's connecting with the, their language. He's speaking relevantly to God-fearers who knew, who were known to be pious and committed. You see, he listened very carefully to the testimony about Cornelius from the messengers, and he listened to Cornelius' own testimony about himself. And he connects this then with what he says in verse 35. In every nation, in every ethnic group, the man who fears him and does right is welcome to him. You see, he's speaking to Cornelius. He's speaking to the crowd. I know that you are welcome to God. He's listened. He's speaking relevantly because he relates knowledge that they already had. He says, you yourselves know the thing that took place throughout all Judea. You, you know of Jesus of Nazareth. How do they know? We don't have any certain biblical evidence of this, but probably Caesarea has already been evangelized to some degree. We know later that Philip settles there. We know that Paul had been there already. So we know that the gospel probably has begun to be shared amongst, probably by Hellenistic Christians, by Philip, by Paul. So there's some knowledge that's already there. They just don't know what it means exactly. He makes it biblically relevant by applying it to the specific situation. He didn't have to convince them that God exists. They were all already monotheists. But you notice what he doesn't do that he did in his first sermon. He overloaded, not overloaded, he permeated his first message with references to the Old Testament, didn't he? What references does he make to the Scripture here? No, no direct, he doesn't prove the text like a lot of us preachers do all the time. And then there's nothing wrong with that. Not proof texting, but citing Scripture. I used the wrong phrase. Okay. But what does he do? He applies biblically-based illusions that are very powerful. You see, he speaks about, verse 34, God's fairness and impartiality. In verse 36, he speaks about Jesus being the peacemaker. He speaks in verse 38 about Jesus being the known healer and friend of the oppressed. He makes it relevant to the Romans with a practical and concrete application, emphasizing Jesus' physical appearance to the apostles where they ate and drank with him. He makes it very relevant to the Romans who have a concrete mentality when he gives concrete evidence. We saw the resurrection. We ate with him. And he taught a new doctrine that the, Gen the Gentiles had no, no, no concept of. You know, when, when, he stands on the, when Paul stands on the Areopagus and he starts talking about the resurrection of the body, they think he's crazy. So, you know, when he shares this message with Cornelius, it may sound alien to him, but he makes it relevant by using concrete imagery. He made the message personal. Speaking of personal experience, he said, we are witnesses of all these things. Verse 39, verse 41, we ate and we drank with him. Verse 42, he ordered us directly to preach. He uses language that communicates to his crowd, to the centurion, Christ preaching peace to a soldier who is there in that city to maintain the what? The peace. 
He ordered us to preach. He says this to Cornelius, who knows as a soldier how to take orders. He has obeyed the angel. He speaks of a testimony that has been given to them. And he's speaking to a soldier that has given that same kind of testimony and an oath of allegiance. You see, what he's doing in this message is he is relating to the crowd and adapting the message so that it is relevant and personal. And he sticks to the basics. Verses 37 through 41, what do you see? Verses 37 to 41. You see the same message that was embedded in the first sermon and in the second sermon. And what do we call it? The kerygma, the proclamation. God sent his son. There it is. You put him to death. There it is. They put him to death. And he did what? He raised him up. You see, he gets the basic message across. And there are two radical messages in what Peter says in this third part of the text. God does not show partiality. Verses 34 and 5. This was shockingly revolutionary statement. Coming from a Jew, one of God's chosen people, it ignores the rabbinic codes and the purity laws, and it, it, it ignores completely the essential requirement for coming into the covenant, and that's circumcision. It's shocking. What Peter had thought he knew, he understood that he did not understand. <laughs> you see, he thought that his commission was only to the Jews, really. Because when he uses this word, to the people, in verse number 42, he's really talking about Jews. The message was for the people. Eighty times this phrase is used by Luke, the people. And every time Luke uses it, it means the Jews. The people, in verse number 41, were Jews who did not see the resurrection of Jesus. So you see, what he's doing here is he's communicating, this is what I thought the gospel was. It was for those Jews and now he realizes in verse 43 that it is for everyone. Radical message. God is impartial. The word really means he is not a receiver of faces. He does not, on the one hand, exclude anyone. And on the other hand, he does accept everyone. God is partial only in one way. Oh, God's impartial. Yes, he's impartial. He rejects no one, and he accepts anyone that will believe. But he is partial in this sense. He shows favor. He shows favor to those who will seek him and follow him. So there is a partiality to God. The other radical message is a radical parenthesis in verse 36. Is there a parenthesis in verse 36 for y'all? Is there a phrase there? What does it say? He is Lord. <laughs> Folks, this is interesting. It's a parenthetic expression, but it is the central proposition of the whole passage. You know, it's a very awkward Greek construction, and it's led to a number of different translations. And that's why modern scholars put it in a parenthesis. They don't know what else to do with it. It's injected in the middle of this sermon. But folks, he is Lord of all, unifies the whole sermon. You notice he doesn't say he is Lord. You know, that, that would have communicated to a centurion that was a God-fearer. It would have communicated to a centurion that's a pagan. Oh, he's Lord. He's Sir. We honor him. He's like the commander. That's okay. But he says he's what? He's Lord of all. That is the central proposition of the whole sermon. It is a monumental statement for Peter to make. What is he saying here? He's not just God of the Jews. He's not just my cultic God. He's sovereign Lord of all nations, of all people, of all ethnic 
relationships of all backgrounds. He's sovereign of all creation. And creation groans and waits for his redemption, Paul tells us. It it refers to what Paul talks about as being the cosmic Christ. For in him all the fullness and deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. You see, every proposition in this sermon is linked to that statement. He shows no partiality to what? Anyone. He sends his message of peace in verse number 36 to everyone. He relieves the spiritual oppression of everyone in verse 38. He triumphed over death, verse 40, for the sins of all persons. In verse 42, he will return as judge of the what? The living and the dead of everyone. And he will forgive, verse number 43, everyone who believes. It is a central proposition of this sermon. Okay, last part. The confirming sign of the Holy Spirit in verse 44. All the way through verse number 18 in chapter 11. The good news is we're not going to read that whole passage, okay? Because a lot of it's repeat. Verse 44. The Holy Spirit stuns them yet once again. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing for... For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse water for those to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. For they asked him to stay on. And then they asked him to stay on for a few days. This is a stunning interruption. You see, Peter's just getting his momentum up. He's just getting his mojo going. And you know what he's going to do? What happens, you know, in preaching? You kind of build a momentum. You get your momentum going, and then you drop off a little bit. And then you do what? You give the what? Invitation. Does Peter give an invitation? No. It's a stunning interruption. (laughs) Who who interrupts him? The Holy Spirit. (laughs) He's just about to give the proofs for all this stuff. And, 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 And he has. And then he's interrupted. It's a short sermon. If, 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 it probably takes about two minutes. Maybe not even that long to read. I don't know. I wasn't timing myself. At that very moment, the Holy, Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius' people. And he reinterpreted in that one moment all the prophets. You see, all people didn't mean Jews only. It meant Gentiles too. Peter's circumcised companions were amazed Even the uncircumcised could be saved and filled with God's Spirit. This was irrefutable proof given evidence through their doing what? How did they know that the Holy Spirit fell upon them? They began to do what? Speak in tongues. You see, God did what Peter could not do. If he'd given the invitation, I don't know what would happen, but God gave the invitation. Peter could not order water baptism without circumcision first. You see, that's where he came from. Probably what he was going to do was he was going to say, okay, y'all come down here to the altar, and all those that accept the Lord, then we need to do what? We need to get the oil out or whatever you call it. We need to circumcise you. you need to be, I, the Scripture doesn't say that. That's probably what he expected. But God said no. You see, God had already done more than water baptism. Peter says, I come to baptize you with water, but there's one that comes after me that is going to baptize you with what? Water and the Spirit, and also with fire. Holy Spirit. 
maybe persecution. You see, they'd already been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And this opened the door for water baptism. You see, what's interesting about this, note this, God did not interrupt the proclamation of the kerygma. He didn't interrupt the proclamation of the gospel. Peter got through that. God sent his son. They killed him. God raised him up. Repent, believe, and be baptized in the name of Jesus. So why did the tongues come? Tongues are not a necessary sign of the Holy Spirit because, as I've said before, not all times do you have tongues accompanying conversion and baptism. Only three times in the 13 conversion experiences in Acts do we have tongues. Pentecost, Caesarea, and then it's going to happen again when? Trivia question. The followers of John the Baptist at Ephesus. Thank you, Jonathan, in Acts the 19th chapter. But here, it's, it's not necessary because it saves. It's necessary symbolically, I think. You see, it mimics, it mimics Pentecost. And so Peter's standing there, and he sees this. And he hears it. And what does it remind him of? It reminds him of Pentecost. Yeah, the same thing's happening here. The very same thing that happened to us is happening to them. And this convinces him, you see, <laughs> that they have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. There's a functional necessity for it too, probably. It bridges a language gap. Remember Cornelius was from which cohort? The Italian cohort. There's a language barrier. We don't know what other kind of language barriers there were in Caesarea. It was a cosmopolitan city. So it served a practical function. So what happens then to finish things out? There's a suspicious and reluctant church in chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised <laughs> took issue with him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? The problem was eating with the uncircumcised. They were upset that he ate with uncircumcised Gentiles. This was outrageous because Peter had done what? He had had communion with uncircumcised Gentiles. The irony of this is they were less concerned about the fact that the Gentiles had been saved and they were more concerned about their what? Their purity laws. And, the, and these were brethren. These were Christians. You see, their obstinacy defied God's plan. God had made it clear to Peter and he had announced it. And Jesus had already rejected the purity code. And Jesus himself had eaten with sinners. The irony of this is that God used witnesses that had gone with Peter to witness to his witnessing church. They gave evidence that what Peter had said was true. Think about this, the shocking effect of what has occurred now in, the, in this following account. A Galilean fisherman, based on a word that he had from God in a trance, claims that God had reversed thousands of years of, of Jewish tradition. One man, a fisherman, at prayer time. But the impeccability of Peter's testimony could not be questioned. He had six witnesses. And how many are required? We talked about it this morning. Two or three. Take three. One or two go with you. That's three. He had double the number of witnesses. <laughs> and, his and his testimony was impeccable. The most conservative Jew probably amongst the apostles was standing there no longer as a reluctant spokesman proclaiming that unity in the church 
did not require circumcision. And that is dealt with in Acts 15. And then he plows old ground in verses 4 through 14. What he does there, just to summarize it, is he shows his original skepticism. He shows that he and Cornelius have both undergone a kind of conversion. And he summarizes the rationale for the mission to the Gentiles. And he reiterates in this passage, it was God who did it. And he finally then gives compelling and indisputable testimony. And I began to speak in verse 15, 11, 15. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. You see, just like it happened to us. And he engages his hearers. You see, they in Jerusalem had been where? They'd been at Pentecost. Do you remember what happened? You remember that day? It's the same thing. It happened to us. And he, he describes the Holy Spirit falling suddenly. It wasn't planned. It came from God. They were literally seized by God. And this was an obvious sign of conversion. Paul tells us later in Galatians, the third chapter. And then he presents his final compelling argument in verses 16 through 18. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down and they glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life, just as he had shown at Pentecost. What's the logic here? The logic is this. If God had already given the greater baptism of the Spirit promised by Jesus, we could not prevent the lesser baptism by water. God has done it, not we. Peter completely transfers again responsibility from himself to God, and he's basically saying this, be careful, Jerusalem brothers and sisters, be careful not to hinder God's will. And they did what? They were silenced. It marked the lack of their resistance and approval. They were persuaded that God had done it all. And they were still surprised. And they were surprised, though pleasantly. And they did what? They glorified God that even Gentiles could repent and receive eternal life. So you know what it means. In the scarlet thread, we've come to the point where God's plan of redemption has been fully expressed. Up to this point, there have been questions about the equality of the non-Jew and the Jew in the body of Christ. And Paul's going to speak a lot more about that then in his epistles. But it is through Peter, most conservative of the apostles, probably the most reluctant to accept this, that God converted and brought this message of unity in his church.